Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from New Orleans, Louisiana. Family and I got here earlier this week as we continue our RV remote schooling, remote working uh, journey around the country. And I'm really excited to catch up with somebody I've looked up to for a long time, a fellow entrepreneur in the education sector who is doing uh, really important work in his role as president and uh, of University Partners and Global Head of Learn to Work Innovation at Kaplan. Welcome, Brandon Busteed. It's good to see you, Brent. And it's uh, likewise been a lot of fun to follow your career. And uh, I know we both uh, both started in the early days in Boston when I was still in Boston and uh, had a lot of common ties and um, and have come a long way in the since those early years. I, I'm I don't want to date ourselves, but I'm guessing we probably met a good 15 to 20 years ago now. So it's been a while for sure. And, you know, I think um, it was always valuable. It still is super valuable to meet other entrepreneurs that were working um, in the education space. And I think that combination of how do you maintain a strong mission, but also build a good business is something you had to wrestle with for a long time. And, um, and we certainly have tried to balance that as well. Uh, and I'm going to get into your entrepreneurial journey, but one of the things I love to do on um, this podcast, just given that it is about uh, the advancement space, about alumni relations and development, uh, I love to just kind of know our guests' own journey to higher education. You went to Duke University. Um, take me back to 17-year-old Brandon and how you made that decision. What were some of the key factors and influences that led you there? Yeah, well, the first thing I should disclose is that one of the summer internships I did when I was at Duke was with the Duke Development Office. So I've had a, a, an early and deep appreciation for the development and fundraising function. Uh, I also did most of my jobs before college and during college were in some form of sales, uh, screen printing for t-shirts. That was a good business back in the high school and college days. So um so in any event, no, but, you know, Duke was, uh, you know, it was, it was a bit of a fascinating journey. I mean, um, uh, I was a runner. I was a track and cross country runner in high school. So that at the time had a big influence on, uh, to some degree, how I was thinking about universities and um, was actively recruited, uh, you know, by a number of campuses and had whittled down the list to, to Duke and Dartmouth and the Naval Academy, uh, which are all, you know, pretty different you know, areas of the country. And certainly the Naval Academy would have been uh, very different from the other two. But um, I'll tell you, you know, what, what the, one of my favorite stories I like to share uh, is about the recruiting visits. You know, what, what, what made me pick Duke uh, beyond Duke basketball and Coach K and all those other things like a beautiful campus um, was the, what, what my then you know, prospective coach told me, Al Bueller, uh, Al had been at Duke for maybe 40 years at this point that he was recruiting me um, and, uh, you know, just a, a, a wise uh, and at the time old guy. I mean, he was in his 70s. And um, uh, but anyway, I remember I, I went into his office and uh, and he sat me down and he said, Brandon, he said, I got to be honest with you. I don't care what kind of athlete you become here. He said, if you turn out to be a great one, that's a bonus. He said, uh, what I'm most concerned about is what kind of man you become. And, you know, it was just a real simple sales pitch that resonated deeply with me because uh, I think I, I probably had some, you know, deep seated sense that uh, athletics, especially running cross country and track was not going to lead me to a career uh, at any point and um, that there was more to it than that. But I was just really taken by the head coach basically saying that to me. And, uh, and that was, you know, that was kind of the final uh, decision making process was, uh, was hearing that. 
And so tell me about the experience um, at Duke. Did it live up to your expectations? What were some of the highlights or challenges? Well, you know, I, I try to go back and think about what those expectations were. Um, you know, there's moments when I look back, you know, 20 plus years ago now, uh, and I think that, you know, it felt like a magical place. Like, you know, I was at Hogwarts, right? And um, hard to believe I went there. You know, I return with my family and look around. And um, I mean, it's just, it's one of the more beautiful places in the world. And you think this is a university and like, I actually, you know, went, went to school here. Um, so I would say, you know, Brent, I, I've, I've written a lot of articles about it uh, where I've said things like this, but, you know, one, the big study that I helped lead at Gallup and the Gallup Purdue Index, right? One of the things it said was, it's not necessarily where you went to college, right? It's how you do college. It's how you take advantage of these incredible opportunities that exist in many respects on all the campuses around the country. Duke's a special place and I don't you know, want to take anything away from it, nor do I want to suggest I didn't have an amazing experience there uh, because I did. But it was mainly a cluster of mentors in the public policy school and specifically in a program I was involved with called the Heart Leadership Program, where you know, my Duke experience was a game changer. And if I go back and look at all those critical experiences like having a mentor who encouraged my goals and dreams or professors who care or working on a long-term project or whatever they might be. I hit all those marks in my second half of my four years at Duke, right? If I had evaluated those things at the end of my sophomore year, it was not the greatest experience, but, you know, Alma Blunt suddenly changed that, a referral to Tony Brown, another referral to Bruce Payne, Joel Fleischman, right? So when, when I, you know, when I think about Duke University, you know, the veneer was the, the, the basketball games and the beautiful campuses. Like what, what I think about Duke University are, are, are those four people and some others who made an indelible mark in my life. So that was, that was my Duke University was public policy, the heart leadership program, and, and very specifically a handful of professors who to this day uh, are still mentors of mine. I'm in touch with every single one of them. Uh, I've been to all their houses to have you know, meals uh, some of them been at mine. And so that, you know, that really was the, uh, the signature of my time there. And I think part of what you think a lot about, we think a lot about as well is uh, given the importance of mentorship and those kinds of relationships in influencing the outcomes and frankly, influencing Duke's ability to deliver the promise that they made to you by way of uh, their marketing mission statement, et cetera, it really does come down to those relationships. And at the same time, those connections often happen in a very accidental, haphazard, meandering sort of way, as opposed to having that kind of support engineered into the process. And it's a balance because you can only engineer so much of that. But on the other hand, if you just hope that it happens in the normal course of a student's relationship, um, you know, you certainly, I'm sure, were on the spectrum of, uh, I'm going to really embrace this and take ownership and have an entrepreneurial mindset, but maybe for students who are less passive or alumni listening to this, you know, our, all of our listeners for the most part are going to be alumni for four-year institutions. The thought of having dinners at professors' houses and having them over to your houses, even to this day, is kind of foreign. And so uh, I'm just curious to get your perspective on uh, the randomness that led to those relationships and how we can think about engineering that kind of support for more students. Yeah, look, you're right. I mean, it's somewhere between like 
just pure hope on one end of the scale and to your point, not over engineering it, right? But, um, you know, take a quick step back, right? You know, Duke and a lot of other elite institutions like it, um, over index on research and over index on the rewards of faculty around research and publishing, right? And those things are really not in line with undergraduate teaching and mentorship. Now, some people might fight me on that, but I've done a lot of research unpacking those things. And I'm not suggesting that research and the kinds of research that universities are engaged in isn't valuable. It's incredibly valuable, right? I mean, some of that research has led to the vaccine that's been created uh, for COVID, but it's different in kind than valuing what I would call world-class teaching and mentoring. And that's where I think we have a lot of room to emphasize incentives, recognition and rewards, not just for faculty, but other staff who are supporting the student experience. Um, and for me, you know, when I reflect back on it, I, I, you know, I have a hard time figuring out how I landed in, it started actually with Bruce Payne, right? I took a class with Bruce Payne who taught leadership through Shakespeare plays, right? And he was one of the heart leadership professors. He was amazing. And he said, Brandon, you really ought to take a class with Alma Blunt. So I took a class with Alma Blunt. Once I got in that network of these, I'll call them like super mentor teachers, right? It became really easy. It was like this, you know, my eyes opened wide and then it was, you should go see, you know, take a class with Tony Brown. And then people told me for two years, you should get into Joel Fleischman's class. Well, it was a senior seminar that only had 15 slots in it. And I didn't get in it until my second semester senior year. And Joel, you know, is probably the most influential of, of all those folks because, you know, he's been a formal mentor of mine for years. Like he still sends me books that I should read and corrects grammar and emails I send them. So, um, but, you know, going back to this, right? Like there, there, there was one part of that experience that was what I call programmatic. It was designed in that heart leadership program. There was a summer opportunity in leadership, right? But it was, it was betrayed by a spring semester preparatory course and a fall semester reflection course. And there was a required, you know, support from the faculty advisor and mentor where you just built a very long and deep relationship with the people in that program. So that would be an example of like, that's not yeah. over-engineering, but it was programmatically built into that heart leadership program. And if I had my druthers, right, you know, emphasizing mentorship, recognizing and rewarding that, requiring an internship, but not just throwing students out there to it, but helping them curate that experience right. with academic reflection. These are things, quite frankly, Brent, that, that every university could do so that every student, whether they want to or not, hits the mark on it. The problem is you peel away all this data and you say, okay, what percent of college graduates in the United States strongly agree they had a mentor who encouraged their goals and dreams during college? It's two out of 10 of us, right? It's two out of 10. So we, we clearly have a long way to go here. And, and so on, on back to that scale of hope versus over-engineering, it's hard to over-engineer because we're so far on the, on the hope side of it. Yeah. That, uh, we just can't go wrong in that respect. Yeah, look, I, I think about my equivalent experience where I happened to go to a Brown Football Association mentoring event. I happened to stand in the side of the room where I happened to meet a guy named John Skinner who happened to like me and then happened to be willing to help take me under his wing, uh, review my resume, teach me how to fake my way through investment banking interviews, connect me to other alumni who would be interested in hiring somebody like me. 
unbelievably random and it has had a life-changing multi-generational impact for me and my family. But what if I hadn't stood on that side of the room? And I think about it all the time. And and at the same time, I I think about when you consider the ticket of higher education, the price point, which I know is something you've thought a lot about. And, you know, let's just take an example where let's just say it's a $25,000 a year investment. Um, If you're making a $25,000, $50,000 a year investment in most other um, areas of your life, you're going to make sure that not only do you make that initial purchase, but then you're really taken care of after the fact, because renewal and customer lifetime value is even more important, far more important than the initial sale. And I think about that relative to the randomness and the hope that oftentimes is character is reflective of the higher education experience. What a missed opportunity. You know, how can, how can every software company have a customer success manager scheduling quarterly check-ins with anybody that has uh, a $20,000 a year contract, but we can't have the same kind of proactive personalized outreach for students. And I think historically, and I don't want to, you know, I have not spent a lot of time in the student experience. So I don't want to overstate how things have changed in the 20 years since I was in school, but it always seemed like it was very passive and reactive. The office hours are there if you want to go to them, right? The advisor is there if you seek them out. That's kind of like having a support email at your company. It's there if you want to send in an issue, but that's the complete opposite of a customer success manager proactively reaching out to you on a quarterly basis to make sure you're doing okay, to provide additional value, to complement things that maybe are being sent in mass marketing with more of a personalized touch. And I just wonder like, where is that role in higher education? And maybe it exists and I'm just underappreciating it or maybe it doesn't exist and it needs to. Instead, I see a lot of programs where schools are launching a mentor platform, send out a bunch of emails, everybody logs in one time, very few actual relationships are created but we checked a box because we were able to say that we have a mentor program. And so um, a lot there, but just curious to get your perspective on how we think about the um, student journey. And then I think a lot of it applies to the alumni journey. If we took more of a customer success mentality, what could that imply for retention, for that two and 10 number increasing? Uh, And then obviously that will influence alumni engagement and interest in being philanthropic as well. Yeah, well, look, you know, you, you, you've you already used a word that, as as you know, and probably many of the listeners do, is not a, uh, a very well-received word in higher education, and that's the word customer, right? But let's be honest, you know, students are a kind of customer. Uh, parents are a kind of customer. Employers are, higher ed has a lot of constituents, right? It's a very challenging, uh, you know, industry to be in, but the resistance to this idea that you know students are not customers or whatever, whatever other you know kind of uh, framing you want to put in there, that's one of the biggest problems, right? So you you will see pockets of outstanding student service across universities, but it's not a culture. It's not a student first culture in higher ed. Now there's probably a handful of institutions that could really demonstrate how they are indeed a student first culture student first organization but you know it's not it's not the norm and you know it's one of the one of the reasons uh actually why why i'm at kaplan right now you know just a simple aside every every building that kaplan is involved in anywhere around the world right and it's a global footprint 
you walk in that building, whether it was a test prep center or an international student pathways program or a residence facility we run, doesn't matter, right? Our business schools, et cetera. The door you walk in, you literally walk into the student service support team. You cannot enter the building without passing through those people. Now that's a, a very physical example of like student first, you open the doors to a building and the first thing you do is you walk into the customer and student service team. So, you know, that's my, you know, kind of example, put aside the physical example of that, right? Like, how do we create that? That's a culture that also creates a pay it forward type of standard, right? If that's how I was treated as a student, that's then how I feel like I need to continue to contribute long after my days as an as officially enrolled student. And then here's the other thing I'll throw into the mix, lifelong learning. The reason why I bring that up is that's a form of customer service that's articulated in almost every university mission statement. In fact, it's the most commonly used phrase in college mission statements, lifelong learning. And you step back and then you go, okay, but that sounds great. How are we actually delivering on that? Are we actually delivering on that? So if you don't want to use the word customer service or, you know, think about a student first model, right? Think about it in the spirit of this, you know, wonderful goal of lifelong learning. If that's really the case, right? We really need to re-engineer a lot of how we think about higher education, including the idea that, you know, we have students and alumni, right? Like that that line between those is boring like crazy, right? And why wouldn't I still be a student at Duke? as opposed to just being an alum, right? Like these are really important questions we all need to wrestle with. I love that. I, I think, um, show, tell me some examples. When you say the line between student and alumni is blurring, what are some examples out there? Well, so uh, I'll go back to one of my great mentors there, Tony Brown. He retired, but he's still teaching one course at Duke. And, um, you know, he's, I think, 81 now. And he decided he wasn't going to be able to be on campus in person to teach classes because of the pandemic. He got so excited because he decided to, in his classes, now that they were all going to be on Zoom, that he could invite multiple alumni to join each class to be part of the discussions with students. So back in the day, he would spend a, a semester in advance booking dates for someone like me to come down and be a guest lecturer, right? Like I'd have to physically come to Duke. I'd be there. Well, it was, it was hard for me to work around that schedule. He had to go through logistics. Now he's got not just one alum visiting, but multiple, and they're completely shaping and helping shape the dialogue with the students, right? Another example, I'm not interested right now in getting a master's degree, right? Like, but I am interested in all kinds of continual learning. So I was looking around for online courses that are out there. Duke's got a limited menu, right? But I actually took an online course. It was a six week course done by the Fuqua School of Business there on financial statements for non-financial managers. I was looking for something very specific. Um, and, you know, it's an example of how, like, I'm still a student at Duke, uh, but, you know, years ago, there wouldn't have been that offering. I would have had to fly to Duke to be on campus to do that. And, and for me, that's just not, you know, it's not a possibility to spend four days on campus right now. So, um, there's a lot of those opportunities. And then there's all kinds of innovation that I'm excited about, right, which include things like allowing alumni to, to have audit level access to all the courses at a university. Why shouldn't that be opened up to my family? Because I'm sure there's some courses or lectures my wife would love to sit on. Although my kids are only 11 and nine, there's probably a couple they'd be pretty excited to listen to and be challenged by, right? So 
you know, with, with this, with the pandemic, and certainly before the pandemic, we just open up a whole host of opportunities here. So a simple concept, right? I donate to my alma mater, but what if there was an option for me to pay alumni tuition, where I actually pay an annual fee to have access to all the content online and in various forms that's being taught at Duke University. I'm not trying to get my degree. I want access to the learning. And of all places where I'd want to get it, it would be my alma mater over another option. Sounds like uh, Duke Plus right next to your Peacock and your Netflix and your uh, you know, HBO Go subscriptions. Exactly. And with that kind of brand, uh, like what, you know, absolutely. There's no reason why it couldn't be that. And, um, but now that said, right, there might be some extensions that, that act very differently because it's, you know, I, I gave the example of like audit level access to classes. Okay, maybe I can, you know, tune in on video to a live lecture. That's neat. But, you know, you can also think about things that are uniquely tailored to alumni. Well, yeah. you know, shorter videos, podcasts, podcast discussions with faculty, yeah. right? Like there's a lot of derivatives of this where it can be highly engaging content. And of course, from a great brand and from your own alma mater, right? A brand you know and a brand you trust. So there's a business opportunity here in addition to a mission expansion opportunity for pretty much every institution in the country. Look, I think we hear from a lot of uh, alumni that the first time they hear from their alma mater after they graduate is to ask for money. And that could come by way of a pretty transactional student caller. It could come by a pretty transactional email approach. But this idea that there, you know, there is an obligation. And I think for some institutions that have built those pay it forward cultures, that has really worked. But the institutions in that group are it's a small, small number. And, um, uh, and I think the model you're describing, which is much more, how can we be a part of your ongoing success, right? That it, that it does not stop when you switch the tassel to the other side. And that really we're thinking about an ongoing partnership so that when it does come time to solicit donations, um, it's in much more of a relationship context. Like there are Right. Five things I can cite that you have done for me as an alumnus that uh, are going to make me more inclined to want to support the institution. Um, and I just think that it's pretty few and far between that we can cite those very compelling two-way street experiences for all but the very top of the giving pyramid, the, the true yeah. principal and major gift prospects. Um, but how do we now in a pandemic context, post-pandemic, where the entire world is now a Zoom link away? I mean, the example you shared about being able to change the curriculum because now alumni can be present. I mean, I sat in Evertrue as a case that Harvard Business School did a long time ago, and I'll periodically get a text message from somebody saying, hey, like, my class is going to be doing your case. And, and that happened to me with a former coworker who's studying at the Anderson School at UCLA right now. And that was on a Tuesday, and the case was Thursday, and I wrote back, you want me to join? And she said, let me check, ask the professor. Next thing I know, I got an invitation, and it was so much fun for me to participate and I have no affiliation with UCLA and then I had all these students reach out afterwards saying how much more valuable it was for them to have a you know right. the entrepreneur in the case there to you know bring life to the story yeah every single case discussion at every business school undergraduate graduate examples like you shared we can now immerse students and connect them to alumni in ways never before possible and oh by the way yeah. I bet you felt pretty good after you finished 
the conversation um, in that class. And, you know, the idea that um, you can be engaged without going to reunion homecoming or, you know, a different football game or basketball game, I think presents massive opportunities for these institutions to build relationships, especially in communities where not everybody sticks around um, in the immediate area when they graduate. Yeah. Look, I mean, you know, the when you really start to ideate around this, the ideas are um, they're, they're close to limitless. Right. One of the other models that I think is, um, you know, is is quite viable for universities. Right. Which actually comes out of the playbook of how mega churches have organized. Right. Mega churches. It's not the experience of going into the uh, former football stadium with 40,000 people to listen to uh, a sermon. They've, they've organized by breaking into very small in-home Bible study groups. And I think it's a poignant case study. Talk about case studies, right? Because if you think about higher education, you think about universities that might have several hundred thousand living alumni. Uh, we think about regional affiliations like, okay, I live in the DC area. Duke will do a Duke and DC event. And it's, you know, one that I haven't been able to attend in years because I'm not in town. I'm, you know, whatever, right? Like, so I haven't been to one in ages, but like great that there's a physical event where I could go in the region. And it's neat to connect with other Dukies who are in the DC area, right? But uh, what if universities started to create the equivalent of a Bible study group with small units of alumni that are designed like a, a forum, right? And YPO, Young Presence Organization, is a well-known organization that kind of builds around a forum. They get five or six young presidents, hence the name, into what's called a forum. They meet monthly. Uh, and you know it's a confidential type of forum where they can have deep, meaningful conversations. Well, I would love to have a Duke alumni forum that would be coordinated with maybe six or seven fellow alums. Uh, I'd love it if it was intergenerational, right? Um, you know, outside of my affiliations of having been a track guy or you know lived in this house or that dorm. Um, and by the way, now that we're doing all this on Zoom, you know, you got no travel time, you got no cost of holding these things. It's just a matter of, you know, do you want to join one and then, you know, providing some light tools and facilitation support as they go on. But they're self-organizing things like an in-home small group Bible study gathering. It's a great example. And those are the, the things that all of what you just described, and I think with a lot of what we've seen over the last year, it was all possible before the pandemic, but the behavior yep. change that was forced into a couple week period um, so that the entire you know, addressable market that you're describing is all now comfortable. They know what Zoom is, it's on their phone. Yeah. They've seen their kids use it, they've used it with their families. How are we gonna activate that generational, once in a generation, if not even less um, uh, frequent, just transformation into better strategies for building community, lifelong learning, alumni engagement, and absolutely development. And I think, you know, not surprising, development didn't stop. And the number of leaders that we talked to who experienced what a lot of sales professionals have experienced, I'm sure you and, and, and I are in agreement on this, is being a Zoom link away from all of our customers, at times, absolutely, we would love to get together and have those social interactions. But this really created incredible efficiency for our organization. I'm yep. sure it did in some regards for your organization. And in conversations with the de development leaders who one year ago today might have said, I would never solicit somebody for a, a seven-figure gift over Zoom. Even though at that time they'd done Zoom right. before they knew what it was, 
they're like, I, it would just be disrespectful. I would never do it. Well, guess what? Every single one of those leaders has now been a part of a solicitation over Zoom for seven figures plus. And they've done the same things your faculty at Duke did, which is, well, now I can invite the president without having to schedule a, you know, a trip in the calendar. I can get the yeah. dean involved. The AD can come in. Now we can have an amazing, like, I would argue a much better experience for the yeah. donor, even though it's not the tried and true handshake, you know, we wanted to get together in person. So immediately yeah. the innovation, um, if you can even call it that, or the, the shift took hold as it came to development. I do not think we've seen examples like you've shared um, beyond the initial reactive, we canceled reunion, what are we gonna do instead? I think we're now entering a phase where we can start to right. say, okay, deep breath, we are gonna come out of this, but when we do, how can we start new programming that we never would have thought of and we probably couldn't have pulled off before all of this? Yeah, yeah, and, and look, there, there's a bunch of these examples uh, and that's where I'm excited. I mean, your example of suggesting that some of this development for major gift officers has actually improved by way of the model you just described, right? Like, cause you always had the limiting factor of when somebody was physically somewhere and how many people you had to physically get there, right? Like a president, you know, flying all over the place. Think of the efficiencies on these leadership, you know, teams that have been heavily involved in fundraising, let alone the convenience, quite frankly, for the donor, right? Because these are people who have busy schedules. Sometimes it's, you know, a major commitment to have a major gift officer visit your home, carve out the time for that. You do a Zoom, you can bring multiple people to the table. I mean, you know, it's the same thing in executive hiring and recruitment firms right now, you know, especially for like CEO level or president level searches. Uh, they would have never thought pre-pandemic of doing a CEO search without meeting that CEO in person, right? You fly into an airport, meet at the airport hotel. You'd have to get board members to fly in to interview the CEO prospects and you spend three months coordinating schedules to do that. Well, guess what? It's all happening on Zoom now. And I talked to one of the world's top headhunters and he said, I don't see it ever going back because people realize it's actually an improvement. Now, I think we're still gonna have desires to visit with people in person, right? We're still, but we have greatly extended our capabilities in this. And now it's just, you know, uh, a limit of our imaginations. You know, we, we had the technology before the pandemic. What the pandemic did was break our behavioral mindsets, right? And that's really now what has allowed a whole new way of thinking, including, you know, take the example of the traditional academic calendar. Why should we ever consider having an, a traditional academic calendar anymore? Talk about lifelong learning. How about year-long learning, right? You could condense a bachelor's degree into two years if you just went year-round. So we're talking about all these ways to make college, you know, a little more affordable. That's not going to be for everybody, but I can tell you for the eager go-getters to be able to do a bachelor's degree all out year round and get it done in two years, maybe with a whole year worth of co-op and still be done in three, pretty interesting opportunities out there for us. Brandon, are you worried that we don't take advantage of this moment? I mean, I do look, I talked to a development leader the other day who it, it was almost the opposite where there, it was, you know, hey, we've just not gotten into our groove talking to people over zoom we can't wait to get back out there we're all kind of watching and waiting to see when you know when we're going to be able to do that and to me it was like that's that's crazy because we're at an all-time high stock market we're at an all-time high real estate market we're at an all-time high yeah. bitcoin market we're at an all-time high um just about everything except for main street but when you look at the 
demographic of the top of, of major donor prospects for the yeah. most part that audience has more wealth than ever before yet there's this perception that well i can't I, I still can't get out there and i think that was somewhat um somewhat specific to that institution but i do wonder are we just going to fall back into our old ways because muscle memory is real it's been you know 20 30 40 years of doing things a certain way yeah. um I don't know what your take is um, through through the lens you see the space. Well, look, I think we always have that where, you know, higher ed uh, for many of the reasons that we love it and it has been this lasting institution in our country, right? Um, it is very beholden to tradition. Uh, there's a lot of group think um, and, you know, it does have a tendency to kind of revert back to how we've always done things. So there's gonna be a degree of that. You know, we saw that in a way with what happened with online learning in the fall compared to the spring. So this is really interesting. You know, the spring, you know, everybody made this mad dash to, you know, adjust from in, in person to, you know, virtual learning. And um, cool that universities were able to kind of move within a couple of weeks to get that figured out. Like that was not easy, but, you know, a lot of people complained. I mean, it was not high quality. It was a straightforward Zoom session. You know, a lot of faculty had no experience with online pedagogy in any form whatsoever. And I think, you know, it was it was it was fine. I would no one would have called it a huge success in terms of the quality of it. But then the summer happened, right? And the expectations were that oh, universities now have some time to figure this out. So by the fall, it ought to be much better or considerably better than what happened in the spring. And you look at some of the recent survey results on this and students actually feel that the quality of their education was worse in the fall than it was in the spring. So, you know, now that might be driven in part by higher expectations that they had, but you know, you step back on that and you go, oh, wait a minute. So higher ed had a lot more time to kind of figure this stuff out or to make some enhancements to it. And the students were kind of like, yeah, no, it wasn't so good. Um, so, I mean, we're already seeing a little bit of this, you know, maybe institutions were thinking the pandemic will subside. Why should we worry about doing better in the fall? You know, maybe got caught behind on that. Um, but I, I tell you, I'm encouraged by a lot of the innovative thinkers out there that have now been given permission. So I, here's, I posit this. I think we've had a lot of college leaders, especially at the president level, who are pretty innovative in their thinking, right? They want to be innovators. They've been held back by boards, other senior leaders on their cabinet, by the faculty, right, who are reticent to go in bold new directions. Well, I think a lot of the innovators now have been given license to kind of think in the new and, well, I'll say act, not just think in the new and creative ways out there. And so I'm encouraged by that, but I do not think it's the, uh, the majority of the market that's headed in that direction. So you know, my, my hope is that these leaders will really start to be successful with a lot of these new moves and just make it one of those things that's like hard to comprehend. Why wouldn't my university try to follow suit? Um, you know, look, there's fascinating questions. Is testing ever really going to come back? I mean, the test optional movement has, you know, it is widespread. People thought of it as temporary. I'm not so sure it's going to be temporary, right? So like, we're going to see a ton of changes in the middle of this, but I hope we don't go back to all business as usual. I just read yesterday, um, I, I had missed this, but I saw that uh, Colgate University experienced a 100% increase in applications this year, in part due to some of the, the changes that you talked about. And um, yeah. in spite of, 
I think, I mean, it just exceeded even the wildest expectations. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. You, you think are thinking it. a lot about the innovators. You're talking to a lot of the innovators. I know um, recently you've spent some time with Andy Chan at Wake Forest. I, I know they've always tried to push the envelope. Um, would you count them among the institutions and Andy among the leaders that are really seizing the moment? If so, tell us a little bit more. What are some of the big, bold ideas you're seeing that maybe our listeners can bring back to their leadership team or, or research a bit more? Yeah, well, a couple things, you know, take a take an example like Wake Forest, you know, they're, they're a school that, that Kaplan is doing a lot of work right, right, with right now. And all the work that I'm doing, it's not about what type of institution it is. Is it big or small? Is it public or private? Our whole criteria around who we're interested in building partnerships with is about the vision and, and yeah. you know, leadership team, right? Do they want to grow? Do they want to adapt? Is there a, you know, a real, um, you know, impetus for doing that? Interestingly enough, right, Nathan Hatch, who has been the president of Wake for a while, retiring in June, so there's going to be a transition, but he established an innovation committee of the board of trustees at Wake Forest. This was years ago. And then he hired a vice president of innovation. This wasn't about tech transfer. It was about anything that fell in the category of a new or bold idea that Wake Forest should consider. So then something like the pandemic comes, right? And when I would argue Wake and institutions like that, the ASUs of the world, right? Who have made innovation part of their culture. It's ingrained in you know, titles and roles and functions, right? They were ready to seize the opportunity. They had, you know, so think about um, universities having a board committee on innovation. That would be one of my number one recommendations to leaders is to carve out that space and as much as a college president wants to think about innovation, you know, he or she has a ton on their plate. And so if you don't have somebody on your cabinet whose primary job is that, ask yourself the question, how much time are you really going to be spending dedicating thoughtful time, consideration, reflection to the various innovative ideas on the plate? Now, um, there's a whole bunch of things that I'm excited about. I mentioned, you know, ending the traditional academic calendar and just, you know, anything goes from that perspective. We're also going to see all kinds of super creative combinations of in-person, hybrid, high flex learning, right? Where, for example, um, imagine international students. You know, the U.S. has had a tough run with international students the last couple of years. A lot of factors involved there. But one of the big factors is U.S. higher education is just super expensive, especially compared to top tier higher education in other countries. So yeah, the four year bachelor's degree experience living on campus, that's still gonna be a preference for a ton of international students. But what about the ones who don't quite have the money to afford that full boat type experience, right? What if they were able to do their bachelor's degree online in the spring and the fall, and then go to campus in the summer when there's usually a lot of housing availability, probably at cheaper costs, and still have that experience. Now you do it year round. So you do it three years and you get your bachelor's degree in three years instead of four. Well, that's, you know, that's an example of a kind of innovative combinations of school calendar, online, residential, you know, applied to an international market where there's a niche of students that will be very interested in that kind of option because it's a price differentiated and time differentiated way to get the thing that they've always valued in that market, a bachelor's degree from a well-known U.S. university. So, you know, I think of a lot of examples like that. 
Um, and by the way, that's going to apply for domestic students in the U.S. too. Yeah. So on whole, sure, the traditional 18-year-old would love to go to Wake Forest and be on campus and residential. Um, but I think elite brands in particular have an opportunity to open up fully online bachelor's degrees. And I would do it price differentiated for the students and families who are every bit academically qualified, but don't have the money to live there residentially, you know, don't want to leave home, want to be able to work while they're going through school and to have that kind of adult learning flexibility of online education as part of it. But with the brands of a Duke or Awake or any, yep. you know, Ivy League institution you want to name, these are institutions, Brent, that could enroll a million students. Right. Think, just ask that question. What would yeah. a Duke of a million students look like? Well, obviously, it's not a million kids living in Durham in the dorms, right? <laughs> um, it's probably only going to be six to 10,000 of those. But, you know, you think about all the adult learning options, uh, online bachelor's degrees, differentiated levels that people could come into in terms of academic qualification. You know, I think about the Harvard Extension School, which has been around for ages. Um, people understand it's an extension school, but the Harvard brand is amazing. And do you think that the Harvard Extension School is taken away from the prestige of Harvard College for the, you know, the handful of students who can get into it? No. So, you know, so if, we gotta push so if that. So the Duke with a million students, um, I, I love that vision and I've, I've had a similar conversation, which is um, it is about the brand at this point. It's about the brand and scalability and you're not constrained by dorm construction anymore. But if you do that, is Duke still elite? Does that matter? Um, and what does that mean for all everybody else? All those other institutions, yeah. um, what does it mean for those? And do you see any of those institutions maybe that wouldn't be in that elite that could be even in the more troubled category is anybody seizing this moment and saying maybe this is our ticket to survival because we can now scale and grow or are they just too constrained by the challenges of the balance sheet that they might be sitting on today well we're seeing some examples i mean look uh everybody talks about asu and and it should sure. be appropriately referenced here you know asu I would argue, has become an elite brand, not because they made their admissions elite. They did the opposite, right? They said, we want to be measured by how many students we serve, not by how many we turn away. And they've looked at that in every way possible, on the ground, online, degree-based, non-degree, pre-college, post-college, right? Like they have really opened up their thinking to that. And you're starting to see examples, uh, stories of small private liberal arts campuses who are gonna sell their entire campus and all undergraduate programs and launch fully online master's degree programs with the, with the proceeds from the sale of the campus, right? So, I mean, and, and that was one where it was a troubled, you know, troubled situation where they realized their greatest asset was real estate um, and they realized they could make a pivot, still do very, very high quality online education, but strategically, right, it's going to be master's degrees and it's going to be online. And that's how that institution is going to continue forward. So, you know, some of these are more dire, you know, situations, right, in terms of what have to happen. But, um, but for the most part, like, like, here's another thing to think about. There's not a growth market in the United States, right, in terms of the population demographic. We're not a country that's growing by our population. Uh, and for traditional 18 to 24 year olds, as you well know, we're going to hit a, a demographic cliff here between 2025 and 2030 ish, 
where we're going to have 15% fewer students who are of that age in the United States. The growth is all in online. The growth is all in non-degree education. And the growth is global growth, right? So we're going to add 2 billion people to the middle class outside of the United States in countries other than the United States. So if our U.S. higher education institutions want to grow, right, uh, one of the strategies is going to absolutely have to be international. We've got incredible brands, probably the most respected higher education system in the world. Some of our brands are the most recognized higher ed brands in the world. Uh, so yeah, to your point, you know, the, the well-recognized brands have a lot of different ways that they can go. Uh, I don't think that, you know, a Duke of a million students would take away from the prestige because they're still going to be the Duke of, I go to Durham, I live in the residence halls, I go to the basketball games, I slap, you know, high five with Coach K as a Cameron crazy. Like that, that is still going to be how people think about the uber, uber elite Duke. But if I could access an online bachelor's degree from Duke and do that from India, there's a lot of people who would snap that up in a second. So um, in terms of the universities that might not have the brand, right, it becomes about delivering on the actual value proposition. And this, Brent, goes to the, the heart of this whole conversation. Show me a university that ensures that a student, no matter who they are, is mentored through that process, right, works on long-term projects, applies what they're learning, has some sort of meaningful work experience that's curated with their academic learning, professors who know their names and care about them as a person, right? You show me an institution that's delivering on that for 90 to 100% of students instead of like 25 to 30%. And that's an institution that will remain successful for a long, long period of time. Tell me a little bit about the scope of your work at Kaplan today. Kaplan's a big organization. You do a lot of things. Everybody's familiar with the brand, probably from test prep. That's not where you're living. Um, what is your core area of focus today uh, coming out of the pandemic? Um, and then I've got a couple of concluding uh, questions I'd like to run by you. Yeah, thanks. So, so you're right. You know, the good news is uh, almost everybody knows the name Kaplan, right? The, the, the trick is that most people know it as test prep because they went through pre-college or other, you know, grad school test prep programs. Um, a lot of people in higher ed are aware of the transaction that took place over three years ago now when Purdue acquired Kaplan University, the academic institution that Kaplan used to operate. Um, but beyond that, right, there's not a lot of visibility of what we're doing in higher ed. And that's been part of my job, right? I've been on board now for two and a half years. And my title kind of suggests some of the things I've been, I'm involved with, university partnerships um, and learn work innovation. And so if I, if I kind of click on a few of those things, Kaplan is a really fascinating, highly diverse global organization. So we actually have the ability to come to a university and deliver a number of revenue driven uh, diversification strategies for them, right? So we're one of the largest recruiters of international students into US, UK and Australian universities. We're powering online degree and non-degree programs for multiple universities well beyond the support we provide to Purdue Global. Um, we're launching a number of innovative pre-college online immersion programs, all under university brands that we power. So you're not going to see the Kaplan name, right? We're, uh, you know, we're, a, we're a partner that's putting the university brand up front, but making sure the experience for students is just absolutely world-class. And then in a big category, right, we're doing a lot to support universities in building the work readiness of students. So that's where a lot of our new 
product and offering innovations have launched in the last year, Brent. So uh, we've been working on what I call credigree initiatives with universities. And that's just the blend of the word credential and degree. So we're taking a portfolio of about 300 um, courses that Kaplan offers that are industry recognized credential prep courses so that students can add to their bachelor's degree or master's degree a highly valued industry recognized uh, credential. So that's one big initiative. And then in partnership with Wake Forest, uh, we just announced this this past month, we're launching a new uh, shared services type of offering for career services offices that's gonna do things like uh, give students access to a whole team of industry and role specific advisors. So in, in addition to the generalist coaching they get from their you know, current career services office, they would now have access to experts in any number of industry verticals or roles. Um, so, I mean, that's an example of some of the, yeah. the innovation that we're working on and, and I'm having a blast with it. I mean, you know, we're not working with a large number of universities. You know, my thesis is you partner with a, a handful of universities and you can build substantial partnerships with them where, you know, it, it, it becomes fruitful for the university and for Kaplan because of the breadth and the depth and the scale of working with a small number of institutions, as opposed to you know doing small projects with hundreds of universities, uh, in terms of that you know that that type of growth. What are you most concerned about for higher education in the next two, three, four years, and what are you most excited about? Well, it's probably uh, you know the, the different sides of the same coin, right? There's um, the the two biggest headwinds facing higher education are the rising cost of tuition and uh, the lack of belief that college graduates are work ready. And of course, those two things um, go hand in hand, Brent, right? Like when you talk about value proposition or the ROI, if my number one reason for valuing higher education is to get a good job, which is the top motivation of why Americans value higher education, and I'm paying more and more for it than I've ever had in the past, and there's more doubts about how ready I am to be successful in a career, that's a bad combination. So I'm worried most about those two you know, headwinds uh, converging into hurricane strength winds right now, but for the universities that can figure out how to harness that uh, by doing things like looking to find ways to freeze tuition for multiple years. You look at what Purdue's done. They, this is a large public land grant university that has managed to freeze tuition now for 10 consecutive years. The competitiveness of Purdue compared to the rest of the Big 10, for example, is just night and day relative to its cost. And oh, by the way, during this time, Purdue has gone up in every ranking, rating, measurement that you can possibly come up with for a university. So the idea that freezing tuition might be a bad brand, you know, like, oh, well, does that mean that a Purdue education is cheap or, le you know, less valuable? Definitely not, right? So, um, so I'm most excited about the universities that are going to take these headwinds very seriously and say, okay, I tell you what, I'm going to tack in a different direction. Instead of having that come hit me head on, I'm going to use it to my advantage. Purdue now is uh, one of the most attractive places to be. They hit record enrollment this year in the pandemic. Um, and they're not slowing down anytime soon. So they're not the only ones out there, but obviously a, you know, a very visible example because of Mitch Daniels and, and all the things that he's you know, brought to the higher ed landscape. I love it. Who are some of the other people that you really 
um, respect that you learn from that you feel like are driving the sector forward? Who should we be well, following on Twitter and LinkedIn and um, yeah. just trying to learn? I mean, you know, most people know the big names, right? The Mitch Daniels, the the Michael Crows. Uh, I, I love finding kind of, um, you know, people and names that are uh, you know, what I would call diamonds in the rough, relatively speaking, right? They're not as well known, but doing some incredible things in their campuses. One I just talked to this morning, Chris Howard uh, at Robert Morris University outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That, you know, the students there are among the most work ready students of any campus in, in the world. I'd put them up against anybody, right? So, you know, you look at like a Chris Howard, you look at a Kevin Ross at Lynn University in Boca Raton, Florida, doing incredible things with their curriculum, with, you know, how they're supporting students. I mean, just, you know, the innovation is kind of spilling out of a place like that. And, um, and I would keep watching Wake Forest, even though they're going through a presidential transition. Like I said, they're an example of an institution that has structurally and culturally built this innovation thing into its system. Uh, so, you know, there's, th th that's the fun I'm having is finding people like that. Um, you know, the, uh, you know, there, there's, there's a long list of them, but that those are a couple that if you aren't following right now, I would check them out. Kevin Ross and Chris Howard. Great, great examples. Thank you, uh, Brandon. So I want to be sensitive of time. We should start wrapping up. Um, but if people want to stay in touch with you and your work, uh, first of all, anybody listening, you've got to check out Brandon's writing in Forbes. It's really, um, I think, adding value and um, new perspectives rooted in data, oftentimes surveys, sometimes um, being read straight from uh, various data systems at, at institutional partners. Really good work there. What's the best way to stay in touch, uh, Brandon? Yeah, I mean, most of my time and energy I put into LinkedIn, right? So I'm not a I'm not a big Twitter guy. Uh, I find a lot of the valuable dialogue I end up having is in, you know, LinkedIn. So certainly connect with me on LinkedIn uh, or follow me there and and dive into the conversations uh, that are happening and and the Forbes writing. Uh, you know that that that's obviously where I'm putting out these things in article form. So those are really the two major drivers. I also host a weekly uh, show called Bold Leaders in Learning. Uh, similar to this, where I do an interview with somebody who's doing interesting work. So that's always on Thursdays from two to two thirty Eastern. So those are the uh, those are the best ways to uh, to catch me. I love it, Brandon. I've always looked up to your work, and just one of closing on one of Brandon's recent Forbes um, articles. He referenced a couple of stats. One, Brandon shared that only nine percent of graduates say their alumni network was helpful or very helpful to them. Uh, and 22% say it was unhelpful or very unhelpful. And I know those are stats that nobody listening is proud of. Uh, we've got a group of advancement professionals here who mean really well and are trying to do work within the constraints of a given institution and culture and leadership, but we need to turn those numbers around. And I think that if we can think about the student experience more like an elite customer experience, and if we can, as you said, further blur the line between student and alumni, I yeah. think it's gonna make uh, it a much more fulfilling relationship. And I think it's gonna make fundraising much more straightforward uh, than, than the way it feels sometimes today. Yeah, I wholeheartedly endorse that. I mean, uh, the good news in terms of looking at that rather sobering data is that you could argue we've got nowhere to go but up. And, uh, and I take that, you know, I, I say that sort of jokingly, but I mean it quite seriously, right? When, when the bar is low, it's very satisfying to be able to move that bar and move it year after year after year. There's a ton of room here to improve. 
And I think the development leadership that, you know, starts to not only move their, their development teams in that direction, but the university, quite frankly, in these directions, it's going to be very productive. And, you know, think about one little last kernel of an idea that's very specific to this fundraising audience. You know, look, we've spent the last half century, uh, you know, raising money to build buildings on campuses. I mean, we've done other things, but we've been putting a lot into building buildings on campuses. I think the next 50 years is going to be defined in large part by raising money to build the virtual campus. And there's a lot of ways you can think about that, right? But that's where you get to that Duke of a million or University X of a million is that a lot of this is going to be virtual. And if you think virtual can't be meaningful, I'll leave you with one final stat. Of all the universities that we were hired to survey in my time at Gallup to do an alumni outcome study, Brent, we got hired by a lot of great brands, a lot of prestigious institutions, right? The one that had the highest percentage of alumni that said they had a mentor who encouraged their goals and dreams. It's a very strongly worded statement. It wasn't like, hey, did somebody say hi to you? I mean, I had a mentor who encouraged my goals and dreams. The highest that was ever measured was Western Governors University, which is an entirely online adult university, right? And you go, how is that possible? The answer is they have dedicated full-time advisors that connect with each student from the time they matriculate to the time they graduate, same one-to-one -one relationship, they connect weekly. And they're doing it like you and I are now, or they're doing it on the phone or on chat. But if you, you, know, if you step back and realize that, it's impossible that most of them don't build a meaningful relationship with that kind of interaction, but don't judge a book by its cover the virtual world can be a very meaningfully engaged world. And I know a lot of the folks listening are starting to discover that if they hadn't already prior to the pandemic. Brandon, thank you so much for sharing those closing thoughts uh, for your insights, for your good work in the sector. Uh, and I do look forward to seeing you out on the conference circuit sometime in real life. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll keep an eye out for the RV. So uh, have fun traveling the country and I'm sure we'll catch up somewhere soon. All right, Brandon, take care. Thank you.